So we're considering the parts of religious worship, and specifically the religious worship that is conducted by the gathered church. And there are several things that we're, we are now uh, assuming as we move forward that we've learned already. We are assuming that we ought to worship God by nature, but acceptable worship, how we ought to worship, is something that God has to reveal to us. We are assuming that when it comes to worship, we are to do what God has commanded. No more and no less. We don't add to what God has said. We don't take away from what God has said. We obey Him in our worship, and that pleases Him. We're assuming that all of the things that take place in corporate worship are going to be done in an orderly arrangement, and that arrangement is to serve to give proper honor to each part. That doesn't mean equal honor, but a proper honor to each part of worship as it comes together to form a worship service. It's to be done decently and in order. We are assuming that the Word of God is the most basic building block of every part of our worship. The Word of God, we could say, is the blueprint. The Word of God is the general contractor. The Word of God is the two-by-fours, the screws, the nuts and bolts, the PVC pipe, the wiring... All of it comes together to form this building project that we call corporate worship. God's Word tells us what to do and how to do it and informs us in every aspect so that we are, like we saw this morning, we are left without excuse when it comes to worship. He's told us what He would have us to do. Now, having considered the reading, preaching, and hearing of the Scriptures last Lord's Day, we come now to the second major category found in this paragraph, which is song or songs. Most of us have never attended a normal worship service where there was no singing. As a matter of fact, singing is such a natural and regular part of Christian worship that you'll hear many people refer to the singing portion of the service as worship over against the preaching. And they have worship and preaching. The, the term worship is used synonymous with singing. Now in light of that, it's hard for us to imagine that among the churches and pastors who originally subscribed to our confession, there were differing opinions on the matter of singing. We are, I think, as many of us are aware of a continuing debate on whether or not we should sing hymns and, and uninspired songs versus only the inspired hymns. But that wasn't really the debate amongst our Baptist forefathers who owned our confession. In the 17th century, the debate was more along the lines of this question. Should we sing or should we not sing? Should there even be singing in corporate worship? And there were particular Baptists who held to our London Baptist Confession of Faith who believed that it was improper to sing in corporate worship. Judging by what I see on a weekly basis, I might conclude some of you of that same opinion. Now we wonder, how could that be? How could anybody 
believe singing to be wrong in corporate worship. Again, that seems to be so natural to us that we think, well, that's just crazy. Especially, we, we might wonder, how could anybody believe singing is wrong in corporate worship and agree to what our confession says about singing? How could that be? Well, notice what it says. I'm going to read from the confession. I'm going to chop it up again to just form a, a, a single thought with regard to singing. But picking up where we left off last week, this is what it says. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord is a part of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Now we can compare that with what we just read from Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now you'll notice that the words of the confession are pretty much an exact copy and paste reprint of what is written in the Scriptures. Uh, and would have been in the King James. Our, our, we'll get to that word thankfulness later. <coughs> and so the thought seems to be and if anybody's interested in more information on this debate, there are some podcasts that I've found very uh, interesting. But the, the thought seems to, seemed, seems to have been this. Though we might disagree on the exact interpretation and application of the words of Colossians 3.16, we can at the very least agree that the words of Colossians 3.16 are in the Bible and they have something to do with how we worship God whether or not that would be in the corporate setting or not. Now, I, I think I would argue that the context of the confession at this point is clearly corporate worship. But somebody, if they wanted to, they could find a loophole and they could say, well, nowhere does it say exclusively or exhaustively corporate worship. Nor do we see in Colossians 3.16 the language of gathered corporate worship specifically. And, and so they could, they could argue that point. The confession also makes a reference to Ephesians 5.19, which says, and this is coming out of verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now we very often refer to Colossians and Ephesians as sister letters or sister epistles because they are very similar in many places, and this would be one of those places. The apostle, and you notice the difference of the language there, the apostle is not saying something different in each of these passages. He's saying the same thing differently. And so what I want to do in, in opening up this idea of singing is I want to look at these two passages, and if you, if you want to in your Bible, you can sort of hold Colossians and you can, you can go back to Ephesians and hold them and just flip back and forth. But what I want to do is look at how they differ, these two statements, Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.18 and 19. I want to look at how they differ. Then I want to look at where they are similar. And then we'll just hopefully deduce from that and uh, learn or consider what it means to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. So first, let's just consider the differences. If we had these verses side by side, what are the differences? First, the source of our songs. The first difference that we see in the wording is the way that the apostle attributes the songs of the saints or the, where, where he finds the source 
of the songs. In the Colossians passage, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. In Ephesians, again coming out of verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Out of that comes singing. In Colossians, the Word of Christ in you. Out of that comes singing. Now, we'll take Colossians first. The Word of Christ. Now, some people would interpret that to be very strictly the Gospel message. The Word about what Christ has done, or what God has done through Christ to save sinners. So they would see the Word of Christ being also phrased the Word about Christ. Some would consider that phrase more broadly as simply what we would call the Scriptures, the Word of Christ, or the way we typically refer to it as the Word of God. It's all the Word of God. Now, I I think it would be safer to see it in that broad sense because that broad sense, all of the Word of God, the Word of Christ, encompasses that more narrow sense as well. Well, we have to keep in mind this. This was written to a church in the first century. They did not have a New Testament. They only had... The Old Testament, that's what they would have considered the Word of God. But in Acts 2.42 it says this, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was the object of the devotion of the early church. So then we might ask, what were the apostles' teaching? What did they teach? 2 Peter 1.20 says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation. Now, I, th- that passage in 2 Peter 1 is really difficult. My, my understanding, if we lay that beside what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 about the preaching of the good news to his audience and how that related to the things which were revealed by the prophets in the past, it seems that Peter understood that the, the job of the, the apostolic preachers was to take the Old Testament writings of the prophets and open them up and explain them and preach them in the New Testament church. In other words, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching was to be devoted to the divinely inspired proclamation, interpretation, and application of the Old Testament scriptures. And much of that is what we have recorded in what we call the New Testament. That's what the New Testament epistles are. Again, they didn't have the New Testament. Paul could call the preaching of his band of, his band of men the Word of God in 1 Thessalonians 2. So the earliest churches were devoted to the apostolic interpretation, explanation, and application of the Old Testament Scriptures, and they received all of that as the Word of God or the Word of Christ in addition to the actual written Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul says to let that Word of Christ or that Word of God dwell in you richly. Let it live in you. Let it take up residence in your soul. And it's a command. Let it do that. It's an imperative. So they were commanded to devote themselves so exhaustively to the Word of God that it came to live in them and became the operating system by which they lived in the world. Let it dwell in you, that Word of God, that Word of Christ, the Word about Christ. We, we could put it all together. And let it dwell richly, abundantly, fully. What happens when you fill up something abundantly? It begins to spew out. So they were to have the Word of God in their hearts and in their minds. They were to 
hear it, to meditate upon it. It was to govern their lives. They were to think, think about it and by it. They were to act by the Word of God. It was to dwell in them and fill them. And that leads us to the Ephesians text, which says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, if we wanted to try to pit these two passages together, we could say, which is it? Is it be filled with the Spirit or is it let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? What is the source of our songs? I would say the answer is yes. We do both. Because the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The weapon of choice in the hands of the Holy Spirit of Christ is His Word. It is the Word of God. To be Spirit-filled is to be Word-filled. At creation, it was the Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep, waiting for the Word to go forth that He might act with, the effectual, with effectual creating power. So it is with us who are born again. We have the Spirit dwelling within us, and the Spirit uses the Word of God or the Word of Christ as it comes into contact with our rational faculties, our mind, our affections, our will. The Spirit uses that to then shape and fashion our inner man to become more and more like Christ. So I don't think there is a competition or a contrast between letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and being filled with the Spirit. I think if we put these two things together, we would say the Apostle Paul seems to believe that to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word. And to be filled with the Word is to be filled with the Spirit because that's what the Spirit uses. This is the source of all Christian singing. We must be full of the Holy Spirit and full of the Word of God. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will sing. We have to start there. We're filled with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The next variation we see comes as the Apostle describes the purpose of our singing. In Colossians, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In Ephesians, addressing one another. Now, addressing one another is just a general phrase. Teaching and admonishing one another is a more specific phrase. So we let that specific phrase temper or, or qualify the general phrase. And so we'll just focus on that more specific phrase, teaching and admonishing one another, which would be the application of what do you mean address? Well, I mean teach and admonish. So we are to teach one another in our singing, teaching, instructing, dispensing of information. The purpose of Christian singing is to convey information. It is to communicate information. What information? The Word of God that was dwelling in you richly. <clears throat> then there's also admonishing. To admonish is to give counsel to someone, specifically warning them of some danger or some error. That's what admonition is. Teaching, communicating information. Admonishing, giving counsel and warning. One another, that is, in the congregation. The one another passages in the New Testament, they always assume the context of a local church. So the purpose of our singing is to communicate, instruct, counsel, and warn the other members in the assembly with the Word of God. When we sing, we are taking the Word of God and we're teaching it to one another. We are singing 
what we believe. We are reminding one another of the truth of God's Word. We are counseling one another. We are warning one another. And this brings us to an application. If you are not singing at a level where you can be heard, you are in disobedience to God with regard to the commands of corporate singing. Because you can't teach and admonish anybody if they can't hear what you're saying, right? Notice how each passage now describes the prevailing disposition of our souls in singing. This is the third difference. In Colossians, he says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's the ESV. The word is chorus. It's translated grace and or thankfulness in various places. I do think grace is probably the more suitable Word with grace in your hearts, because in Ephesians he said, Be filled with the Spirit, who is the Spirit of grace himself. So we're to sing with hearts full of grace, full of the activity of the Spirit of God, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. In Ephesians he says, Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That is, your entire inner man and singing and making melody are very often actions of a a joyful attitude or disposition. At least a, a disposition which agrees with and affirms the truth that's being conveyed. So the prevailing disposition of the soul when singing ought to be one which is taken up with and full of the active work of the Spirit of God, stirring us to see the goodness and the greatness of God. And in this sense, this would be to sing in spirit and in truth. The fullness of the inner man, the mind, affections, and will, enveloped by the truth of the Word of God, and it comes out. That's our disposition. And so, I'm going to conclude all this, being full of the Holy Spirit, and thus full of the Word of God, We are to instruct, counsel, and warn the other members in the assembly with the Word of God, having the fullness of our own souls enveloped by the truth of God. That is Christian corporate singing based on these two texts. Now let's summarize the similarities in these texts. And we see these two texts agree practically verbatim. Colossians, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. Practically the same thing. They agree with these three words or these three phrases. And this is where the debate ensues over whether or not the apostle would have given an allowance for man-written, uninspired hymns. Now, I'm gonna, there are probably a lot of different opinions about this. I'm going to summarize sort of what seems to me to be the three primary interpretations or views on these three words. <clears throat> the, the view one is this. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs is a reference to three different types of songs. Now, in that opinion... The, the word psalms would be the inspired psalms, capital P-S-A-L-M-S, the psalms, 
Or psalms could just be a song specifically accompanied by music, which is what the word psalm means. Then the word hymns would be uninspired songs, particularly of praise. A hymn is a song of praise. And then spiritual songs would be uninspired songs of all kinds. Praise, exhortation, mourning, lament. But the point being, that view says this, this is three different kinds of songs. And that's what Paul is outlining here. The second view would be psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, is a reference to three categories of song found in the book of Psalms in the Bible. In other words, everything he's saying here is a description of the inspired Psalter, 150 psalms that we find in the Scriptures. Now, following the regulative principle of worship, we are to do what God has commanded, add nothing to it, take nothing away, then we would deduce that Paul here is commanding us to sing psalms. We do not add to the book of psalms. We do not take away from the book of psalms. And therefore, only inspired psalms from the book that we call the psalms would be acceptable in Christian worship. That's the second view. The third view... or or the third of these more popular views, is that psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is just a a, a threefold synecdoche for all types and kinds of songs with no real intention of drawing hard and fast lines between them, just like when when he says, uh, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, yes, we can deduce the specific meanings of each of those words, but when they are compiled like that, the point is all types and kinds of, of sin. Here, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. All types and kinds of songs. And that view would allow for uninspired songs, like the first view. Now, in this church, we have historically, and without debate and and much discussion, taken that first view. While we have not concluded that we are limited only to the Psalms, we do believe that we should be singing, at the very least, the Psalms of Scripture. And in addition to that, we sing hymns of the faith. We sing Mostly the older ones from our hymnal. We want to try to avoid paying a CCLI license. Um, and just to be honest, most new songs are terrible. They're just, they're just silly, immature. The lyrics are not that great. Um, we've done some songs composed in the context of this assembly, but we have uh, those have been in addition to the psalms themselves. Now, here's how we could view this by way of, of, of question. Would we be in sin if we completely disregarded the inspired psalms or the Psalter? Would that be wrong? I would say yes. I I, I don't see how we can get around at least that word, P-S-A-L-M-S, without seeing something in there about the encouragement to sing the inspired psalms. Another question would be, Would we be in sin if we completely disregarded all non-inspired songs? In other words, is it a sin to to hold to the exclusive psalmody position? And there again, I would have to say, I don't believe that that's, that's wrong. I don't believe that we are commanded to sing more than the Psalter. I don't believe that that would be an erroneous position. Are we in sin then if we include uninspired songs with 
the inspired Psalms. That's what we do. Is that sinful? Now, as of yet, I've not heard a convincing enough argument to, to bring me to that position that, that singing hymns is sinful. Now, what was impressive to me as I thought about this topic and, and listened to some stuff is that our particular Baptist forefathers were so concerned about the purity of the worship of God that many of them left good churches over the matter of singing. Some of them, after the service was over, they would give a time break where some could go outside while the others stayed inside and sang together. They had such a high view of worship and a high view of God and carried such a trembling at His Word within them that their conscience would not allow them to offer what they felt was strange fire. They could not in good conscience take the Word of God and put music to it and sing it. They felt that would be blasphemous. It was almost like mockery for us to get together and just sing the words of Scripture. They had the Word of God in high regard and they didn't feel that that was right. They... Some of them could not in good conscience offer to God pre-written, prepared songs. The idea would be we've got a hymnal here. Somebody wrote that song. We don't want anybody writing our songs. That's not right. They, they, that's the way that they viewed it. For, both of, for many of them, both of those reeked of popery and state church bondage. Remember the Church of England had the book of common prayer. Here, here are your prayers for church in this book. Here they are. These are your prayers. So the idea of, of pre-written, pre-prepared liturgy by somebody outside of that assembly. Remember the Baptists were, were very uh, strong-headed about the authority of the local assembly. They said somebody outside of this assembly does not need to be telling us what we need to do in the assembly. And so when it came to singing hymns, well, nobody needs to be writing our songs. Well, when it comes to the Psalter, well, we don't feel right just singing the words of Scripture. And I guess they viewed that, that act as somehow, uh, again, a mockery or taking lightly of the words of Scripture. But in either case, they, they had a very high view of worship. I would say at the very least, we should sing the Psalms. And there are a lot of churches who say, well, we're not exclusive psalmody. Well, so, so when do you sing the Psalms? Well, we don't sing Psalms either. I think that's a problem as well. I think we should be singing the Psalms and I think that anything else that we sing must be in accord with the Word of God and the truths revealed in the Word of God if it is to accomplish what the Apostle describes here, being filled with the Word of Christ and filled with the Spirit, teaching and admonishing one another. You can't do that apart from the Word of God. We ought to be able to say in all of our singing... We should be able to look to our neighbor and say, I just taught you the truths of the Word of God. The very truth that dwells in my heart through faith. I just taught you that. It must be in accord with the Word of God and the truths revealed therein. Now, by way of application, let's consider the four things which ought to characterize our singing. We are to sing with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. First, understanding. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 15 and 16, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? 
He says, I will sing praise with my mind also. Now again, this would be one of those texts that seems to be very uh, specifically descriptive of when the church gathers together. It seems like Paul believed that they ought to be singing. He says, I'll sing with my mind also. In other words, he says, I'm not willing to empty my mind and sing things that I don't understand. The, the Corinthian error was to, to sing or speak in you know, some unknown gibberish language that he didn't understand and nobody else understands it, but it's spiritual. He says, I'm not doing that. He wasn't willing to sing songs that other people didn't understand. He said, I want to understand it and I want the other people to understand it. Why? Because his goal was always the edification of the church. He was always thinking about others. It was not about himself, but about others. If we are to sing with understanding, at the very least, we must sing songs with words that we know and understand, or that could be explained. We should sing songs that have clearly distinguishable doctrine. We should sing songs that most, if not everyone, can sing along with. If it is to be corporate, it ought to be something that we could all do together. And we should try to learn new songs slowly, and as we've done before, even before we come together. That way, when we get together, we're not trying to figure out how to do this thing together. We're, we're, we're working on it prior to that. Why? Because I, I don't want to be wrestling through how to sing a song in the act of the corporate worship. I, I can do that on my own time and bring it. That's singing with understanding. True worship is more than an intellectual activity, but it is not less than an intellectual activity. We must be ready and willing to use our minds to offer to God thoughtful songs. So we are to sing with understanding. We are to sing with faith. We are to sing believing our own selves, the truths that are being conveyed. We sing believing this is a means of grace to us and to others. They are teaching and admonishing me. I am teaching and admonishing them. We must sing believing God inhabits the praises of His people. If there are songs that are questionable in their doctrine or in their lyrics, or we just don't understand what they mean, we should either not sing it or change the lyrics, which we've done in here in the past. Change it. What is, what is that? The uh, All glory be to Christ. There was that one phrase in there. We were like, what does that even mean? Well, we don't know. Well, let's just change it to something we, we, we understand. If we wanted to take Paul's statement in Romans 14 and apply it specifically to singing, we could say whoever has doubts is condemned if he sings because the singing is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now I've been in the presence of men who I do consider brothers who, who didn't make a public fuss about the songs that were being sung, but because they believed in the exclusive psalmody position, they did not sing. They just stood there. Everyone around them sang. They didn't sing. Why? Because they had a conviction about this matter. I've also been in services where I did not sing because I could not in good conscience, in faith, sing the songs that, were being, that we were being led to sing. Most of the time it's, it's newer, silly, just garbage. And I can read the first two lines and say, I don't want to sing this. I can worship better by myself than to sing what's, what we're being led in. 
Very often, most, most modern songs are not written from a perspective uh, that, that can easily get everyone together singing together. Uh, they're, they're, they're written by somebody who was sitting by himself in his bedroom and he thought this would be a great song. And you get other people together and they, they can't follow what, what's happening. It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The hymns that we sing, you'll notice, most of them, and there are many that we don't know, but most of the time hymns are like this. They're, it's pretty easy to catch on to what's happening. Hymns are meant to be sung almost like a chant. Uh, where you don't need music, the words themselves are the, the music. They, they, they make up the melody themselves. Why? Because we want it to be easy to catch on and to follow. And again, there are times when I've kept quiet because I, I just didn't know the song. They put a song up, I don't know this. Well, I'm just going to stand here and read the lyrics. The next time it comes up, if I want to sing it, I can. But we need to be able to sing in faith. Thirdly, we ought to be able to sing, or we ought to sing with reverence. That is a holy respect for the activity of worship in light of the God we are worshiping. Reverence. Now, there are joyful, upbeat worship songs. And there's nothing irreverent about being joyful and upbeat. And there are slower, more solemn worship songs. In all of our corporate singing, we must never forget that we are in the presence of God and that we are singing the Word of God. One thing about children is that they are naturally lighthearted. Children do not tend towards gravity. They tend towards levity. And so very often you'll hear children singing a song they've heard in church, a psalm, a hymn, and they sort of almost instinctively just sort of drift into changing the letters and they make the song goofy and silly. In those situations, what I do with my children at my house is I will remind them, You've, you're taking the things of God on your lips. Don't sing that silly. Sing it right. Or don't sing it at all. It ought to be done with reverence. Again, there's nothing wrong with being silly. There's nothing wrong with making up gibberish songs and laughing or or songs you can't understand. There's nothing wrong with having a good time. But when God's things become playthings, we've lost our reverence. And if we lose our reverence at home, it's very easy to, to not even know what reverence is when we've gathered in the assembly. And I think that's a good way to help our children to understand the idea of reverence in corporate worship and in singing. Fourthly, godly fear. Godly fear has many applications and fruits, but it is in its essence a conscious awareness of the God who is and that that God is near in our singing. And so in worship and in singing, we must work to keep our minds sensitive to the presence of God. Now that doesn't mean the hair on the back of your neck stands up or you get cold chills. You say, well, there there he is. He's here. That's not, not what it means. It is an awareness of the promises of God that He draws near when His people praise Him. But also an awareness that the Holy Spirit is like a dove. He's easily quenched by sin. If we wanted to use the anthropomorphic language, he's, he's easily scared off by sin and by wandering thoughts and by hypocrisy and by mere formalism. He's not going to endure that. So we have a godly fear. We need to keep in mind the words of Hebrews chapter 2, speaking of Christ. It says, He's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Just as Christ walks in the midst of the lampstands, He draws near through the preaching of the Word and He stands and sings with His people. He teaches us by His Spirit as we sing to one another. And He sings with us by His Spirit when we sing. I'll tell of your name, speaking to His Father. I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of a congregation, I will sing your praise. So we ought to sing with reverence and godly fear. I'll close with this very simply. Let's do whatever it takes to become a singing church. Whatever it takes. And one last closing remark, and I think this is defensible. One little hint. It'll start with the men. When the men sing out and sing loud, the church becomes a singing church. Some of you ladies would probably really get a kick out of hearing the men sing on Saturday mornings at 6.30 a.m. We were talking yesterday about how that early in the morning we got basically two notes. And we, you know, we'll pick out a song and we're looking and we know there's a high spot and we just begin to groan. Oh, this is going to be something. And the men who've listened to the recordings, you know, hey, it's something. It really is. But it's, it's, it's a blessing. It, it's a, we, we, we sing. The men get together and sing. Can you even imagine? So let's stand and sing hymn number 681 in closing.